This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally, Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Let's go, business storytellers. Hey, how's everyone doing? Thanks for joining us today. We want to talk about trust. And what's interesting about trust, as older as I get, it seems like the less I trust. Somebody sends me an email and says, oh, um, I noticed this mistake and whatever, or I got this tip for you. Um, and maybe it's a good tip. Hey, by the way, do you want to hop on a 15-minute call to get acquainted? No, I don't. I don't know you. Send me, you know, send me your, your Twitter profile. So certainly, um, I don't know. I'm just getting, I'm turning into a grumpy old man, maybe. But brands have to build that trust. So today, uh, I'm joined by Margot Bloomstein of um, Appropriate, Appropriate, can't read my own writing. We'll get to her company name. Margo Bloomstein, she's the author of the book of the same title, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. It came out earlier this year. It's available on Amazon. And of course, we have a link to it. And it is the featured item in the Amazon Live carousel. Let's get her on the show here. Margo, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be speaking with you. And I, uh, I mean, I had to put so much trust into you to get you on the show, but haha, <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. You, I mean, we've been connected for, for quite a while. Um, tell me about why did you focus your book this year on trustworthiness? Why is that an important topic for you? Well, I think over the, over the few years, and I mean, I'm sure as you well know, kind of in the, in the life cycle of writing a book. You know, early on, several years ago, I was starting to to notice trends around things changing with trust, maybe in the political arena, certainly around political speech and and the media that that amplified it or or chose to turn away from it. And um, I noticed how, in many cases, going back a couple of of election cycles, we were seeing how people were were maybe being bombarded with new information, but weren't necessarily taking it in. Sometimes they were hearing new ideas and kind of turning away from them and saying, you can't really, you can't really change my opinion. What I believe is what I believe. Um, if it feels right, it probably is right. And, and no new information is going to change my thoughts on, on maybe the, the different political organizations or political figures and candidates that I support. And I wondered as, as a business consultant, would that matter to my clients who by and large aren't in the political space? Um, they're, in, um, they're in organizations in marketing departments of a variety of sizes and industries in healthcare and financial services and higher ed and retail. And I wondered if these changing issues around trust and how people take in information would affect them. Turns out they very much do. And we saw over the past couple of years um, irrespective even of the pandemic, how people are changing the way they take in information. We've grown cynical. People now take in information and don't necessarily align it with their existing beliefs. They don't always let it change their existing behaviors. And that's a problem. 
that's a that's a deep seated problem of cynicism that undermines marketing in every industry across the world, um, irrespective of the size of your organization. So that very much does matter to my clients. And I wanted to see, well, if we have this problem of cynicism and how people are consuming or, or ignoring information, what can we do about it? Are there organizations that are able to effectively push back and through their choices in content and design and, and how they choose to tell their stories, how they choose to maybe be vulnerable with their audiences? Are they connecting with them better? Are they building trust? Are they empowering people to make better decisions? So those are the organizations that I sought out to see what are they doing? What are they doing well through content and design? And what can we replicate in other organizations, regardless of industry or your marketing budget or the size of your team? What can we all be doing differently? And it turns out that matters a lot right now because that's how we continue to build back our society after several years of gaslighting in the political sphere. That's how we continue to reboot our economy. That's how we build stronger organizations, stronger interaction with our, our various consumers. Um, that's how we build a stronger society. And that, I think, is the big role that business can play in building a stronger society. Very interesting. I didn't know we were going to go down the politics route, but that's okay. We do that every once in a while. Now, tell me really quickly, um, since I hacked it up here, what is your company's name and, and what kind of people do you work with? Like who um, who did you find? What kind of uh, vertical, I guess, did you find cared about this as well? Sure. So my company is Appropriate Inc. Um, I'm all about the, the double entendre there uh, because I think so much of what businesses do when they communicate well is communicate appropriately for, for who they are, for their communication goals, for the needs of their target audiences and the platforms through which they're engaging those audiences, whether it's in social media, if it's on Twitter or Instagram or, or TikTok or through print media or, or through kind of their traditional web ecosystem and, and, and sort of influence of websites. Um, I'm always looking at what can we do to make sure that we're, we're bridging those communication gaps more appropriately. And then I work with, with marketing teams and agencies, as I said, in a broad variety of verticals. Some of my, some of my favorite clients have been in higher ed, in retail, um, some large financial services organizations, uh, maybe the, the organization that is managing your retirement investments right now, um, as well as in healthcare. So as I said, even though some of the roots of this problem and my thinking around it are in the political realm, that's not really where I focus. But I think that we can all still learn a lot from some of the changes that we've been seeing there. But it's not a political book, not meant to be a political book. This is everybody's Absolutely. problem now. And, and what's interesting in the political area, too, it seems to me, at least, that um, it's really hard to, like, change anybody's mind. Like, this is mm -hmm. my opinion. And I'm sticking to it. Um, that's, um, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting. Now, when it comes to trust, I mean, it's also a little bit like a relationship, right? I mean, I joke uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm married, got two kids, but relationships are also like, what are the negative, there's plenty of positive things in any relationship, right? But what are also the negative things you can just deal with? I mean, everybody has something negative. I do too. Mm -hmm. Um, but being trustworthy, I mean, you also like overlook things, right? Like this person seems trustworthy and this one thing over here, yeah, whatever. I don't really care if that's, uh, if that's, you know, 
a negative, well, I, I guess, so to speak. So much of how we build trust through interpersonal relationships, as well as then with the engagement with the brands around us, the organizations around us, um, who we true who we choose uh, to look to for guidance and for information. So much of of how we determine who to trust comes back to the framework that I describe in trustworthy. It's it's a, a three pillar, three part framework around voice, volume, and vulnerability. And so much of that goes to having a consistent and familiar voice, whether it's in how we engage with, with other individuals, maybe with, with our colleagues at different companies, or, or as you said, with our spouses, with our partners, with our closest friends. So much of it goes back to having, having that sort of rapport and familiarity that comes from, from speaking the same language, maybe using the same sort of jargon or technical terminology to know that we're on the same page, that we get each other. And we look to that for the brands that we trust as well. We look to see that they understand our needs, that they're not talking down to us, not dumbing things down for us, but making their own expertise accessible, that they're they're helping us become better versions of ourselves, smarter versions of ourselves. A lot of that, though, also affects then how much they say or the volume of information that, that we bring into engagements. And, and again, that's the same whether we're talking about interpersonal communication, you know, when you when you have that colleague that that never lets you get a word in edgewise or or maybe express your own ideas, you may not necessarily trust them as much as you might somebody that's that's there for the give and take that wants to give you good ideas and information to make better choices but also respects that you have your own ideas. And then that third pillar around vulnerability, as you were saying, like with, with relationships, so much of the trust that, that we use to cultivate relationships comes from vulnerability. How much of ourselves we're willing to share in that, in that sort of gambit to find like-minded souls, like-minded organizations. And I think that's definitely a trend that we're seeing now in many businesses, that they are choosing to be more vulnerable, maybe about, about their values, they're making their values visible, they're leading with their politics, maybe their perspectives around social issues, or they're prototyping in public and, and making known how they are trying to evolve, how they're trying to improve business operations, and, and that right now it may be tough in the middle of a pandemic. So they're choosing to be more open with their employees, um, with the marketplace, maybe even with their closest critics in an effort to bring them closer. And I think that's a lot of how we build trust as well. Yeah, I mean, so many things to unpack there. Um, voice, volume, and vulnerability. I took the took my gamble again with my handwriting here. But the one thing I want to mention really quickly, it's always interesting how often I can bring this thing up. Who the deck are you? And this, I first was introduced to this um, from, it was it's a flywheel. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is because when everybody talks about their voice, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of companies come up with the same old gobbledygook. You know, we mm. want to sound friendly and we want to sound like whatever. So how do we, I mean, certainly you can walk through this thing, but what tips do you have for for companies to find their voice? And you know, it's it's interesting to me, actually, that I have to ask this, because even for myself, you know, like for my own personal brand, I guess, you know, there's some struggles there to find my voice, you know, and my voice changes and then I got to readjust it. And so, of course, I can see why it's difficult or more difficult when you have committee meetings on top of committee meetings. 
but how can brands hit the voice? Let's start there if we can. Sure. Well, I think um, you raise a really good point that sometimes it's it's easy to lose our voice as whether it's a, a personal voice or an organizational voice, because everybody wants to be everything. As you said, who doesn't want to be friendly or or modern? And one of the conversations that I have with my clients a lot is, okay, well, what does it mean to be modern in your organization? Because frankly, there are usually many different perspectives on that. In some companies, modern is, is uncomfortable in a sort of 1950s hard-edged aesthetic. In other cases, modern isn't, um, isn't innovative enough. It's not nearly cutting edge or leading edge or bleeding edge enough. And they may define those terms differently as well. But in other companies, when I hear them say, well, we want to be seen as modern, I like to push back and say, well, how is that any different from how you're seen now? How will, how will that change how you communicate from what you're doing now? And, and oftentimes I start to see subtle little shrugs around the table because people don't know what does it mean to be modern and how will that be different from what they're doing now? And I think the problem is that we use these words in so many different ways but we rarely unpack what they mean specifically, locally, within our organizations, within our marketing team, so that we're all on the same page. And it's that specific kind of breakdown and denotation that matters most. So one of the, one of the exercises that I do with my clients, usually as part of our very first, um, first steps in our first engagement, is to help them develop a message architecture or a hierarchy of communication goals. And that means making tough decisions and, and kind of making those trade-offs because you can't be everything all the time. Is it more important to be innovative or more important to be seen as maybe traditional, reliable, and tried and true? Is it more important to be cutting edge or is that too risky? Are you Do you need to be a more risk-averse organization, particularly for your industry? So we make those decisions by going through an exercise that I developed called Brand Sort, where we sort actual physical cards, or if we're doing it virtually, we do it online as well, between who we are, who we're not, maybe qualities that better describe a competitor, and who we'd like to be, those more aspirational qualities. And by making those tough decisions and talking about it along the way, we can develop more of a shared vocabulary because that's what's really revealing, I think, in many organizations, because we do all use the same terms, but we mean them in different ways. In some organizations, friendly is is affable, it's goofy, it's um, it's approachable. In other organizations, it's maybe more conversational, more um, more relationship oriented. So it's important to get at what we mean so that we can communicate more strategically. And I would say that's probably the first, the first exercise, the first question that I have mm -hmm. for any client is first, how do we figure out how do you develop that hierarchy of communication goals so that we use that message architecture then to guide all of our, our other decisions around editorial style and tone, choosing the right content types, choosing even the right platforms on which to tell that story? Yep, um, definitely interesting. I think the um, finding the voice, and I was um, trying to find the book here while we were um, talking J.J. Peterson wrote the book, uh, one of the books with Donald Miller, you know, and, and of course the story brand framework. I'm not a story brand guide or whatever they're called, 
But, you know, it's basically a formula, right? This is how you walk through the story. And that's kind of what you're describing. You have to come up with this is how you, uh, this is how we talk. This is who we are. This is who we're not. Um, but I think it is so important to be very specific and not just, oh, I want to be friendly or I want to be authoritative or knowledgeable or whatever some of those buzzwords are. Um, talk mm. about volume. Um, by volume, do you mean just the volume of uh, how often you are in front of people or, or what does that refer to? So that refers to how much you need to say uh, visually as well as verbally to help your audience make good decisions. So one of the um, one of the organizations, one of the case studies that, that I share in the book talking about voice is from MailChimp and looking at how that as a as a marketing company serving other brands, how they've evolved their voice over time and developed the right tone and nuances to their tone to fit different channels, different topics. When we look at voice, then we go a step further to say, beyond just how we're speaking and what we're saying, well, how frequently should we be saying it? And how much do we need to say every time? MailChimp offers some good examples of this. And, and then I also look at other brands like America's Test Kitchen and Crutchfield Electronics to look at how they take their voice and then deploy it across a wide variety of platforms to give their audience enough information to make good choices. So looking at, say, the example from America's Test Kitchen, big publishing organization, um, very popular with many home chefs through their different cooking magazines, um, the dozens of cookbooks that they publish every year, their cooking television show, there's the Instagram feed, their Twitter feed, um, online cooking courses. And they're always modifying the level of detail and the amount of content so that it's right for the platform, right for the channel in which their audience is engaging them. Now, when I say the amount of content, it's not just the length of an article or the number of characters in the blog post, but also the level of detail in imagery. Can you communicate the same thing by being much more streamlined, maybe maybe more of an Ikea-esque streamlined experience? Or do you need a dozen images in every post, in every photo gallery? Do all of those images need to be really rich with detail so that people can look at them and understand what they need to know to make good decisions. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, wherever your audience is engaging with you, that's what they need to do. They need to feel confident in you, as well as confident in their interaction with you. That's what America's Test Kitchen offers up. They're selling empowerment because they're selling success. They're selling success. Very interesting. And the volume, what's your philosophy on, I know I've, I've had many, many people argue, oh, this is too much volume of content. This is too uh, whatever. Um, you know, you can't just keep throwing stuff at people. But what my opinion is that if your content is relevant, I mean, there's always a line somewhere, right? But the line is further down, down the way there. If your content is relevant, you can send content to people all the time and they'll read it. And sometimes they ignore it. And sometimes... Um, and they consume it, right? As long as it's mm -hmm. relevant. So it's not as much about the volume as it is about the the, the relevancy, I guess. Um, yes. how, how do you feel about yeah. that? I think that's that's completely accurate. And relevance is in the eye of the beholder. Your value, your brand, the beauty of your brand is in the eye of the beholder. And I think that is a testable proposition. So when I look at organizations, like I mentioned Crutchfield Electronics, 
they produce a lot of content. If you look at, at their site, it breaks a lot of rules. It's really, really long pages, jam-packed with information on product reviews, understanding how to look at different products in a category. They're in the business of educating their audience, and they know that their content is valuable because they can look at site analytics. They see how their audience spends a lot of time on those really long pages. And then when they get to the end of them, they click to keep reading on even more long pages. And then when they finally put a product in the shopping cart, they can measure the success of that as well because they see that they have a really low rate of product returns. They have a high degree of confidence. They've earned a high degree of confidence with their audience. In contrast, we can look at um, one of the other brands that, that I looked at, one of the other organizations, is the British government. If you look across gov.uk, all, all of the content there to meet the, the needs of British citizens, what you see today is a very stripped down experience. It used to be 75,000 pages of content across nine different websites. And and to use your term, it was not relevant. There was a lot of information there, most of it not very useful. So they went through a process of testing the content, getting feedback on it, to pull it down, to say, let's only comment on things. Let's only create content on only the things on which we, government, can create content. So they pared it back from 75,000 pages with a lot of version control issues down to 3,000 pages of content. I know for many brands, that's still daunting, but for a government, that's manageable. And for their audience, it becomes much more relevant. People aren't hunting around to see if they need to get other information on different topics like taxation or applying for permits or government benefits. They know that when they get that information on a single page from the government, that that's all that they need to know to make good decisions and feel good about the decisions they make. So I think when we measure relevance that way, in its value to our audience and enabling them to make good decisions in empowering them to make good decisions. That's when we know that we've created enough, that we've shown them enough, that we've written enough, just enough and, and not too much. It's always a fine balancing act. It's, and I find it very interesting to certainly test that great example from the, the British government. Now in the last five minutes here or so, um, the, the final piece is vulnerability. And, and vulnerabilities are always interesting to me because, you know, like, I mean, I've been vulnerable in, in, in some uh, capacities before. And then, you know, sometimes um, it didn't really help because somebody exploited the vulnerability. And so I can see brands going, I'm not going to be vulnerable because the second we're vulnerable, guess what? Somebody's going to sue us or something. So how do we, uh, how, how should brands think about that, that term? Vulnerability is risk. It's the, it's the risk that businesses take for the greater reward of maybe greater loyalty from their audience or a broader audience or, or maybe greater visibility. But it does take risk. So I think you need to ask if your organization is courageous enough, if it can define kind of the, the boundaries, the edges of risk with either how much it shares, maybe how much it empowers its social media managers to be able to communicate openly and quickly without a lot of legal oversight, maybe through, through social media or just how much you want to engage with, with your audience, maybe share your roadmap, um, engage with them to, to get feedback and ask questions. That may open your brand up to a lot of criticism, 
but it also opens you up to greater engagement with a more loyal, more um, more interested, more invested audience. So I think we're always weighing that risk and reward. But you mentioned earlier, like some of the buzzwords around our brands and vulnerability is very much one of them. When we talk about vulnerability and authenticity and transparency, yeah, so many organizations want that, but they don't operationalize it. They're not willing to put skin in the game. And I think when we look at how we operationalize vulnerability, when we actually bring our audiences closer, look to our critics for feedback, that's when there's real opportunity for growth. And some of the some of the organizations that I look to for examples of that maybe are not engaging in ways that we typically think of as vulnerable, but they're certainly reaping enormous rewards. I, I spoke with some of the team at TED, how they navigate challenges when, when some of their content is maybe deemed less credible, when, um, when they've had different talks published through the site that then other members of the scientific community respond to and say, you know, this has been disproven or, or this was always sort of spurious and, and questionable to begin with. They've had to figure out, well, do we just take stuff off the site? Do we do we hope nobody ever noticed it? Do we go big and, and publish disclaimers around it? Do we have to add additional notes? And in order to figure out how to move forward from, from mistakes, from, from faulty science in their publishing, they took the approach of being vulnerable, of bringing some of those critics even closer to say, here's what we're thinking about. What do you think? What do you, what do you recommend? How would you handle this situation? And in doing so and having that kind of open dialogue, yeah, it was risky. They they opened themselves up to greater criticism, but they also brought those critics closer so that they could then be champions of the solutions that they proposed. So that when Ted did roll out new comment modules, additional notes and whatnot on some of their videos, maybe pointing people toward updated information on the videos that, that were deemed a little bit outdated, they could put those talks in greater context. They could bring their audience, their entire audience of, of critics and big fans alike, bring them closer, show them more of kind of how the sausage is made. That is risky for many brands, but for, for brands like TED that are willing to do that, for brands like Zoom that are willing to engage in public apology when the technology doesn't always support people's needs, um, for other brands where, where maybe the CEO has been caught doing something incredibly boneheaded and now they need to pedal back, for, for brands like Old Navy that I wrote about that are trying to lead the way around um, around better ethics, around racial relations, around um, making sure that their store experiences are more inclusive. When they've messed up, when they've been caught engaging in racial profiling, they've had to figure out how do they reconcile who they are as a brand with who they'd like to be. And I think for many brands, that's a daunting task, especially around so many social issues. But the brands that choose to prototype in public, make their evolution visible, bring maybe their, their critics, their fans, their champions into that evolution, they're leading the way and vulnerability is helping them do that. <clears throat> Absolutely. Prototyping in public. I'm always a big fan of that. And uh, shout out here, Vox Pop Me, if you want to check them out, Agile, qualitative research with video. That way you can actually hear from your customers um, in near real time, Vox Pop Me. Dot com. Margo, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Uh, really appreciate it. 
Thank you. This was a lot of fun. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win. Hello. Hi. Are you still there? I have a special offer for you. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. My Going Live book is now available on Amazon.com. And if you're in the United States, I'm happy to send you a signed copy, which you can order at paypal.me forward slash C-T-R-A-P-P-E, C-T-R-A-P-P-E forward slash 12. Thanks for your interest. If you're not in the United States, I can't send you a signed copy, but of course you can order on Amazon.com.